Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where you are part owner. Member NCUA. More at mnvalleyfcu.coop. Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by Lee Pomeroy. Good morning. Joining me now, I have a guest to talk about the Water Resources Center here at Minnesota State Mankato, the Associate Director, Kimberly Musser. Good morning, Kimberly. Good morning. Glad to be here. So glad to have you on. You know, I've done a number of these interviews with folks about environmental issues, water, etc. And the name Minnesota State Water Resources Center keeps coming up again and again because you guys basically collect data and then you disseminate it for folks working in the environmental services. Yeah, exactly. And we have this really rich, long history. So we're a regional center for environmental research and information exchange, and we're housed here at MSU. And we started back in 1987 by this visionary biology professor named Henry, Dr. Henry Quaid. I remember his name. Yeah, and he was really interested in trying to figure out ways that we could use the skills and experience of MSU professors and staff and students to help solve some of our regional water quality issues. So since then, we've been trying to help uh, provide background and research about rivers and lakes, trying to aggregate and disseminate information about area water resources, and then work closely with citizens and regional and state partners on projects. So give some examples of projects that you've worked on or things that you've done, because I've talked with the Soil and Water Conservation District folks who talk about doing watershed work and trying to plan to reduce pollution and all those sorts of things. So what are some practical things that you you do there? Well, some of the main projects that we've been helping with it over many years is doing water quality research. So we have been working to collect surface water samples. Um, so looking at area lakes and rivers and collecting water quality data about that, those river systems. And we also do groundwater monitoring. So we have that long history of doing actual water quality monitoring and tracking that. And then we also do a lot of planning and coordination. So we work with local counties, SWCDs, the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency, and other state partners, um, Department of Natural Resources, on trying to help improve watersheds through watershed planning and citizen engagement projects. Now you talk about collecting these samples. Where are these collected? In all over southern Minnesota? Just in certain counties? How wide of a reach do you have? So our water quality monitoring specialist, Ben Von Korf, is responsible for the Greater Blue Earth River Basin. So really... And that's um, pretty big, isn't it? It's a large area here south of us. And... We are part of this much larger statewide network called the Watershed Pollutant Load Monitoring Network. And the goal of this program is to try and continuously do water quality sampling so they can build evidence about trends in water. So are our lakes getting better? Are rivers getting better? So the Watershed Pollutant Load Monitoring Network is an excellent resource that people can refer to online if you're curious about long-term water quality monitoring of area rivers. 
So you can log on and visit their website and you can see our pollution levels getting better or getting worse in these area rivers. Now you've been in this for 20 years, you mentioned. So how have the trends been looking in terms of the water quality here in our southern Minnesota area? Well, it's a mixed bag. I won't try to mince words and say we don't have our major water quality problems. Sadly, when you look at different pollutants maps on the state of Minnesota, you can see there are really elevated levels of sediment and nutrients in our part of the state. And they kind of uh, show up as hot spots on statewide maps as areas where there are elevated pollutant levels. So there is a lot of work that needs to be done to try to reduce those pollutant levels. But some trend investigations have shown that for the Minnesota River main stem, for example, there has been some reduction in sediment and some reductions in nutrients, but we still have a long, a long way to go. Do you know what attributes to some of those improvements? There's a lot of factors that go into long-term trends for water quality, but I think if we look at the phosphorus improvements, I think the changes in wastewater wastewater systems, that was one of the major in drivers. Cities that, that are... Cities that have improved their wastewater systems really help to reduce phosphorus. And for sediment, there's quite a number of practices that have led to some of the reductions. But I think if you look, many circles in water quality monitoring have a lot of concern about how our area rivers, the flows have increased so dramatically, and some of the resulting impacts of that with increasing amounts of erosion of the riverbanks as a result. So while there's some improvements, there's really a lot of challenges that we're still trying to rectify. I was wondering if, if some of that might be due to climate change where we've been having those torrential rains and things that come and swell those creeks and, and rivers and, and, and up so much and then you get that runoff, et cetera. Yeah, so exactly. So there really are these changing climatic traditions that we're seeing. And we've seen also in general, if you kind of look Look back at how the landscape has changed, like since pre-settlement times, there used to be a lot of wetlands across this whole landscape, and a lot of those wetlands have been drained, and a lot of these surface waters have been connected, and there's huge drainage networks throughout our, our watersheds now. So when there are precipitation events, the water rushes very quickly to our area river. So it really does cause concern about the amount of this flashiness of these flows. We have a home on Lake Washington, and I'm on the Lake Washington Water Quality Committee. And so we've had presentations from the Lesueur Soil and Water Conservation District folks talking about what are some of the hot spots in, in the terms of the watersheds, where can we make the most improvements in terms of adding, let's say, a wetland area, putting some land into different cover crops or things like that. So there are things to do, but it's a matter of getting people on board. Do you find that's kind of a hard thing? Because maybe somebody says, well, I've got my farm field. I'm not going to put it into a wetland. So what do you do? And that could be maybe your biggest improvement. Yeah, I think one of the areas that I get to work in a lot is in watershed planning and engagement with citizens. And there's a lot that goes into management decisions on people's properties, whether you live on the farm or in the city. So there might be some places identified on a map if you do um, investigations for the best practices, you know, where should we put them? And then there's really a lot of decision that goes into whether um, that wetland is something that that family wants to do on their property or not. So 
getting the best management practices, what they're called, you know, implemented in, in these watersheds, you know, we realize there's a host of considerations that go into that. But one of the things that we're learning, and um, we've had quite a bit of experiences using geographic information systems, so using these sophisticated mapping programs to try to help us identify where are those places in the land that would be best suited for particular practices. And then it, the next step is for the, our, the local partners, so in water counties to go and approach those landowners and see if there's some willingness, if it works within their their operation vision. And we've worked with lots of people and have lots of owner interviews over the years of people that, you know, it, it is a good fit, you know, so you try to find those places on the land where uh, they're effective places to, to put these practices in. But we're also working a lot with folks in the region talking about uh, the benefits of soil health and one of the major challenges that we have in our area is trying to store more water back on the land so we don't have these flashy flows. So wetlands are one of the practices, but we're also learning a lot about the benefits of soil health and how that can really help to if there is water soil that is stays in the soil profile and kind of acting like those sponges that we had historically that were the wetlands, we can really hold a lot of water back on the land. So how, how does that work? How can one do that to improve the soil? What, what happens to make that a better sponge, as you described it? So it's, it's a very exciting time in, in terms of understanding soil right now. So there's a lot of research going into a lot of area farmers are interested in learning more about soil health practices. And so some of the main things that we've been learning is that when you till up the soil and you break up the soil, there, there are a lot of benefits to reducing that amount of tillage and planting cover crops or or if you can, in some areas, perennial crops to hold hold that water. And they're finding out that it's such a fascinating field of study, the soil science, and the importance of um, trying to help those microbiology within the soil. So not only that trying to help the soil structure and not, but if when you till, till the soils and it breaks some of the the soil structure up, there's also these communities that are living underfoot as well. And so these organisms that can really help build organic matter and build up your soils, there's cover crops can help to feed that. So they're really learning. It's like a whole world underneath your feet in these soils. And we're, we're at an exciting time where a lot of researchers are trying to understand, you know, what are some of the benefits for building that soil health and replacing some of the, retaining the soil within that soil profile. Is that something that's new? Because I know my parents way back in the 70s when we were farming, we used to do the no-till thing and we were one of the first ones to adopt it and terracing and things like that. And way back when I remember having a congressperson come to our house uh, to do a, a big tour and was on TV and everything because of this new practice. And I mean, we're talking in the 70s, so that's why it's so surprising to me that it isn't more prevalent. I mean, we're talking 2021. Right. And that's exciting that you have that family family history on your farm. You know, I think that people are learning more about what is actually happening underground. And so, and farmers are, I think 
one of the complexity. It's not a new thing. We have known about it for right. a long it's time. Just but there's renewed interest in it, I think, right now. In part, like some of the, of the soil health meetings that I've been attending, farmers are finding that if they do do soil health practices, they sometimes get out on their field sooner. And there are some benefits in terms of having these healthier soils, reducing the amount of inputs that they have to put in for their operations, having access to their fields. So there is this, um, during this time where we're seeing these huge changes in climate and and these, you know, kind of unprecedented weather patterns, I think there is some benefits that farmers are seeing. And although it can be tricky to transition and, and the economics, I think we're learning more about the first three to five years of what that transition to incorporating some cover crops into your operation. We're learning more that from some research that I was recently hearing about from the Soil Health Institute that if you're, you know, five plus years in, you can really start seeing some of the economic benefits as well. Now, you mentioned GIS. Now, GIS is a new thing. You mentioned, you know, that is something that we did not have, did not exist way back in the 70s. And so that is something new. And you mentioned how that is being used to help with improving water quality. Yeah, there's some really exciting new tools that are out there where you can, they have very high resolution imagery of the landscape and you can run these conservation targeting tools on a particular watershed. And it will be, you can have these outputs that will make it quite clear where these opportunity areas are, where there might be places that have more erosion potential, where there might be really great places for wetlands to be restored on like former lake beds and things. So with this high resolution imagery, some of these opportunity areas really become apparent. So it's it's exciting. And we have a really strong geography department here and lots of students that are coming through that program and that are getting trained using these this sophisticated mapping system, this geographic information system. So it's a really nice tool in the toolbox. So what kind of careers come out of people that might be involved with the Water Center, for example? We have been so fortunate to work with a lot of of talented students over the years. And that's one of our main focuses. We try to help give applied learning experience to students. And we generally have a cohort of anywhere from 8 to 20 students that are working with us on projects. And it kind of depends on what projects we have at the time. But one of the rich things for me is that these students come from all over campus. So they'll be either in biology or environmental science or engineering department or geography or geology. And then on some of our outreach projects, we've been able to use the talents of some of the art or video students. So they've really helped us to explain some of these watershed processes in engaging ways. So we have students coming from all across campus. We've also had technical writing students that have helped a lot with some of our reports. So we try to align some of the talents of the students with some of the projects that we have. So sometimes they want to learn more technical skills, like so hone their GIS skills and get more applied experience. Sometimes they want to learn how to work with community groups. So we've had folks helping us with some of the planning projects, or maybe they want to get field experience. So they've gone out and water quality monitoring. So when we get to go to statewide water conferences, it's really thrilling to see our students, and they are off uh, really making a difference in 
area. So we we see tons of alumni at these conferences, and they're working all across the state. Some have jobs with state agencies. They can be hydrologists or geomorphologists or biologists that are helping to assess area rivers and lakes and the biology associated with it. Some work for cities or soil and water conservation districts or counties and really helping with that local implementation of best management practices. And then some are working in private consulting. So there's a real range of the kinds of jobs. But I think what's so exciting for for us is that, you know, I was recently talking to a a student and I think they had the perception if they wanted to help natural resources, they needed to work for the National Park Service. Or DNR or something. Yeah, or or DNR or move somewhere else. And I think what we have see so apparently is that there's so many ways that you can dig in and do research on there's a lot of research that needs to be done and there's a lot of planning and management that needs to be done in in our area and you can definitely work local and make it a big difference and you know I just wanted to share that I was I was thinking about this I recently saw this quote by Eleanor Roosevelt and she said far and away the best prize that life offers is the chance to work hard at work that's worth doing and I think when I think about our, our alumni just it's really an exciting legacy that the that our center has for trying to help um, plug in and get students that work experience so they can help improve area waters. You're talking about monitoring the waters. You mentioned the rivers and the lakes. And what about the aquifers, kind of that underground stuff? Does that get measured for quality or what goes on under the surface? Yeah, so my colleague Ben Von Korft is responsible for the regional, um, there's three sites that monitor the the Mount Simon Aquifer here in the area. So there is a regional partnership that we're a part of that pays to monitor three wells in the area. And the goal of the project is try to understand whether our the water levels in our aquifers are, are decreasing so that we are not measuring for the quality, but we are have a there's a monitoring network that's looking at the quantity and the, the levels within. How is that going? You know, because you hear about places out west that are drying up. And I mean, water is such a, a resource that is disappearing in some cases is going to be real tragic. With the Mount Simon Aquifer, there was a lot of concern in the western part and up towards the metro that they were seeing drawdowns. And so it's really great that part of the legacy money is being spent to try to better understand our groundwater resources. And I think that we're seeing in our area there's some long-term stability, but we're we're grateful that there is this kind of network of observation wells where you can do some investigation and see if there is some drawdowns. So the DNR has a, a really helpful website if you want to learn more about groundwater, if you just Google the observation well network for groundwater. What are some things we can do as individuals to help improve the quality of our water in general? Is there, I mean, we're just one person and, and sometimes you it's such a big system. So you say, what's going to make a, a real big difference? Yeah, and I think partly is just trying to really understand what's happening with our area watershed. So I think really getting grounded and educated and, you know, what are the trends? What are we seeing in area water resources? And if you have land that you have, you can really think about how you're managing your land. And if you live in a rural area or on a farm, I've met many amazing farmers over the years that are really thinking about how that water moves across their land, their landscape and on their farm and thinking about when it leaves their farm, what is 
you know, what's the condition of, of water. So the same applies if you live in a city, right, or if you have managed land in an urban area. You know, there are ways you can try to slow the flow and filter pollutants out in your backyard or in the farm fields. So it's really the same kind of themes, just as, you know, depending what you can do. And if you don't have land that you're managing, I think really the think about getting education. There's also opportunities to plug in. And we've recently been advocating for trying to get more water storage on the landscape. So part of that turns into some advocacy work and some policy, recommending some policy shifts to get additional money to our our region to try to store more water on the land. Because sometimes you do see that when they're putting in new roads or things like that, they'll have little holding ponds, I guess. Is that the kind of thing you're referring to? Right. Yeah. So we were very excited to learn that in the last legislative session, there was a water storage bill that was passed. And so as part of this bill, there's $2 million that will be funneled into the state to try to clarify what are the best ways to store water on the land and to pay for some of the practices to support that. But I think the basic philosophy is to try to hold that raindrop where it falls and try to let it soak in as it did historically in our landscapes to help reduce this kind of flashy flow problem that we have. I was reading about the Minnesota River Basin Data Center which is part of the Water Center, contains a vast amount of data drawn from a variety of sources. And you share this all over the state. So are you, is it mainly Southern Minnesota data or are you going all over the state gathering information from others and putting it all together for everyone to use? How does, I'm just curious how it, it works. So the Minnesota River Basin Data Center started a couple of decades ago and it was meant to be a central clearinghouse of any kind of data related to the Minnesota River. So we have this long legacy of being a repository here at MSU for Minnesota River related data. And we have a lot of maps and other descriptive information about the watersheds available on that website. We also have other resources that we help to support here at the center. Like one is a statewide website called the Nutrient Management Planning Portal. So the effort with that was to try to disseminate the latest research about nutrient management to local partners that are working at the county level to try to help use this information with their planning and outreach with citizens. So we have a different different kinds, a couple of big data centers that we help to manage. So that's one. What is the other one? Um, so the Nutrient Management Planning Portal. So we have the Minnesota River Basin Data Center and the Nutrient Planning Portal. Have things been improving over the years? Because we hear so much about the, the nutrients going into the, the rivers and the phosphorus, et cetera. And I know they've been had laws and things that have prevented, I think, is it the phosphorus from being put in certain fertilizers and things like that? You know, we have done some trends work with the Minnesota River over these long time horizons, mm-hmm. but it's kind of a mixed bag, you know, depending on geography. Yeah. yeah. What what are some other things you want people to know about the Water Resource Center? Because it is a great thing that we have here in our own community. Let's see. I think some of the things that that we really are excited about is working with with students on applied projects. So some of the other things that we're working on recently besides the the river monitoring and the groundwater monitoring is helping some lake groups to do some research about their lakes and trying to understand the sources of pollutants to their lakes. So we're working with the Sleepy Eye Lake um, and working in collaboration with Dr. Bryce Hoppy and some students. And we're trying to really understand the sediment dynamics of that very small watershed. We've been helping out other small lake groups as well and trying to help them with 
fundamental research, but also trying to figure out some management planning for these lake systems. So, Like I mentioned, I'm on the Lake Washington Improvement Association, and they've talked about working with the data center here at MNSU, et cetera. And that's where we're getting a lot of the information to talk about the pollutants in the lake. And, you know, we've been mentioning farms, but also what about homes, people who are living on the lakes? How much is that percentage of contribution to some of the the pollutants? Yeah, it depends on the delineation of the watershed and how big that lake shed is. So if it's mostly rural, it will be mostly derived from farm fields potentially, but if it's a small watershed with a lot of homes along it, then so really we just look at what is the major land use within that watershed and then how do you try to address those, you know, different land uses and address the pollutants coming off those. So in some watersheds, the houses can make it be a major source of pollutants. I do know that in Lake Washington, for example, when they the city finally put in sewer systems versus septic systems, I think that was a huge, made a huge difference. Absolutely. Yeah. And some of these smaller lakes that may not have septic systems that are either up to code or being repaired properly, so there can be issues with a septic system. So it's been a really interesting process working with these lakeshore owners and trying to figure out what can Everyone, I think, needs to do that soul searching and figure out, well, what can I do? What's my role? How can I improve this water body that everyone enjoys? And, you know, sometimes there's tensions and finger pointing saying, oh, it's all coming from the ag lands. And, or they're saying it's all coming from the, the city folk. And I think when the most successful examples that we've worked with, everyone says, hey, we can all play a role. We all can be thinking about practices that we can do to improve the quality of these lakes that we, we really enjoy. We've been fortunate to have a lot of different researchers at MSU and students at MSU engage in different lake studies and watershed studies over the years and are, you know, really interested in trying to to ask help to answer the questions that community members are holding about their their lakes and what's happening with the assessing the lake and turn and performing research on what the condition of the lakes, but also helping to be part of the solution. Like so what are we going to do about it if we're finding big pulses of sediment? Okay, how can we what are some of the potential potential sources of that sediment and how can we try to ameliorate some of those impacts. So we have a, have a great diversity of different kinds of projects we've been able to work on. Kim, what are some of the next big things you're looking for in the next five, 10 years with the water centers? I think some of the, in the ways that we've been trying to figure out how we can help with regional water quality, we've been thinking a lot about the soil health, as we've already talked about. Um, and also, we've been hosted a few meetings about ag-urban partnerships, and that's of great interest to us as well. How can we try to help people see that they're all part of this one big watershed, and that sometimes upstream actions are impacting or flooding uh, downstream regions? And so is there a way that we can partner differently to have cities, and and entities that don't typically collaborate together with these rural and city partners come together differently so that that we can collaborate so and I think that's a really exciting idea that I think the state is exploring like how do we partner differently so it adds up to cleaner water where is a place we can go to find out more information about the water center Kim we do have a website that so we're part of if you if you google of the Water Resources Center at Minnesota State University Mankato, you'll see our website. That's part of the College of Science, Engineering, and Technology. 
Very good. Well, thank you for all your information, helping us understand better what's happening here right on campus at Minnesota State. We've been talking with Kim Musser, who is the Associate Director of the Water Resources Center here on campus at Minnesota State University. Thank you so much. Thank you. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where you are part owner. Member NCUA. More at mnvalleyfcu.coop. Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by Lee Pomeroy. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union. With two locations in Mankato since 1934, it pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org.